You're listening to What's Contemporary Now, a show about culture, the people, places, and things that together make it up. In our first season, we invited Vedic wisdom and meditation teacher Johnny Pollard to the show. In this episode, we get the chance to speak to one of his students who's gone on to cultivate a beautiful community in his own work as a teacher. Jesse Israel, much like many others, suffered from bouts of anxiety and depression before tumbling down the rabbit hole of meditation and discovering its endless benefits. As the founder of The Big Quiet, Jesse has created a movement that's gathered millions of people for mass meditation, both virtually and at some of the most iconic places in the world. Today, he teaches us more than just a few things, including the keys to more effective leadership and understanding that our true power comes first from within. This is Jesse Israel, and we're talking about what's contemporary now. Jesse Israel, obviously you and I have known each other for years, and some people might know you from the time you spent on tour with Oprah, or guiding meditations of Deepak Chopra, reading the New York Times, or of course your own project, The Big Quiet. But given that there are people discovering you for the first time today, it's always nice to get a little bit of the background. So I wanted to find out from you, how does one go from being a music entrepreneur to the meditation man that founded The Big Quiet? (laughs) So I started my record label when I was 20. I was a sophomore at NYU. I had no idea what the hell I was doing. I was just making sense of what it meant to be a young man in the world. (laughs) And this label that I'd started out of my dorm room, we signed a band called MGMT that took off. And my roommate and I went on this great journey where suddenly we had this band that was a sensation. By the time I was 23 and our label and this band had really taken off, I was starting to get hit with pretty debilitating anxiety and having panic attacks. And it was confusing for me because... I had this cool kind of sexy business that was growing and on the outside, everything looked great. But on the inside, I was definitely going through it and my internal world was not great. I just didn't feel good and I didn't feel good about who I was in the world. I was pretty unhappy. So I went on this journey to make sense of how to move through that. And there wasn't as much dialogue then around mental health and there wasn't as much conversation around talking about these kind of internal challenges. So my journey started off as kind of a personal journey. That's how I learned meditation in my early 20s was a way to help me move through some of those internal stressors. And it really helped. It brought me a lot of relief. And I started organizing group meditations. I'd be at music festivals behind the scenes, organizing meditations with other musicians or with other label people or managers. And we'd have these moments of total quiet while there was just complete chaos and noise all around us seven stages all playing different music drunk people all over the place and in a small group of us in total silence and after we'd have these moments of quiet other people would start to share about some of the challenges that they were going through and it was that moment where i remember realizing oh, i'm not going through this stuff alone other people are dealing with these same challenges regardless of how cool their jobs are or how successful they might seem this is stuff that so many of us are dealing with and that's really when i realized okay i'm ready to leave my label And I want to take what I learned about developing bands and throwing concerts and really just what I learned about popular culture and apply it to creating community where people can slow down and talk about real stuff. And that's how The Big Quiet was born. Well, you're talking about doing this with small groups backstage. And I think obviously there are benefits doing it alone. And then, of course, finding community in those small groups. But when you say the word scalability, most people think of it in terms of business. And yet here you are leading these mass meditations with a ton of different people in these large spaces. So how do you go about creating that unique kind of connectivity or meditation experience in such large numbers? So it started with small groups, like Mm -hmm. you just mentioned, those backstage music festival meditations, which there'd be a few of us, four or five of us sitting in practice. 
when I left my label and I started to dedicate myself to this project, and at the time it was just a project, wasn't a business. Actually, I didn't have any idea that it would be making money or become a full-time thing. At that time, it was just a project. And the initial project that I did outside of the music festival thing was my buddy's apartment. He lived in a loft in Nolita and he offered it to me to invite people to come together and practice. So I reached out to my friends from the music industry, the tech and the fashion world, friends who were bartenders or DJs, just kind of people that you wouldn't expect to get quiet with and just explain to them why I was creating this gathering. And probably like a fourth of the people that I reached out to actually responded or cared. Um, <laughs> but the people that came for that first meetup, I think there was maybe 15 or 18 of us at that first one was that it? came, got a lot out of it. There was a need that I think all of us had to be connecting and talking about real shit, you know, at this deeper level that we just weren't experiencing with our busy lives in New York City. And I think that need got filled by all of us gathering, getting still and talking about real stuff. And what I did at that first gathering was at the very end, I just asked people what they got out of this, what they'd like to see done differently moving forward. It was just feedback. I was just asking people, what are your needs and how can we shape this small growing community into what you're really feeling called to, what you really want. And I listened to the feedback. And then a month later, we gathered again and I implemented the feedback of some of the things that people shared. And then they told their friends about it. So more people came. I think we maybe had 30 people at the next one. And it's the same thing. End of the event, listen to what people wanted, listen to the changes, just constantly being in the position of how can I best serve this community and do it in a way that feels exciting to me in ways that lets me use my gift. I wasn't as clear about it at the time, but that was essentially what was happening. So each month we were iterating, molding, shaping this thing based on what people really needed in their lives. And because it was connected to that need, my belief is that it just grew, right? When there's a clear need that lots of people have and we can create a product or a community or whatever, a business to solve for that need, my belief is that that thing is going to grow. It's going to be supported. It's like a law of nature. When there's a need, something grows if you can effectively provide people with a solution for that need. So we went from those 15 people at the first one to 30 at the next. By the fifth or sixth month, 100 plus people squeezing into my buddy's place. So the big quiet really took off when we did our first one at Summer Stage Central Park as a way to say, all right, let's open this need up to the five boroughs of New York, make it free, really go big with it and just see who wants to come. And that's when we realized we were onto something. If you're having these conversations and you're asking them what those needs are, I'm assuming you've also stumbled upon some of the differences people found in terms of the benefits meditating within a group versus on their own. And I was curious to hear what those differences or benefits may have been. You know, so many of us, myself included, hadn't really experienced big group meditations before. Uh -huh. So we were all figuring this out together in real time. We noticed that the more people that were coming to our gatherings, the deeper the meditations were. The more people that were showing up and the more people that were contributing to the moment of silence, actually participating in creating silence together, the more there was this feeling of community and connection. When you have 100 people and all 100 people are totally silent for 20 minutes, there's the realization that all it takes is one person to laugh or to cough or to just get up and leave and it will disrupt the whole experience or it will be noticeable to everyone in the experience. And I think everybody realized that they played a role in creating that experience as a group That's and the right. more people show up and the larger these meditations become the more you start to feel this collective power of 
we're all playing a role in making this silence happen. And there's something about that that I think feels special to people. I think people feel like they're a part of something greater than themselves when they can show up and participate in that way. So I think that that was something that really started to appeal to people. And then it just started to feel exciting. When we would talk about doing meditations with thousands of people, people were just interested to come experience it. And there was something I think that was just intuitively calling people to being a part of something like that. And when you go beyond that, you can look at some of the studies that the Transcendental Meditation Organization has done, and they've done a handful of them, where they had large groups of meditators coming together daily. And what they saw was that in the areas where they were doing these daily mass meditations, crime rates were going down in certain areas. And there were significant changes in the societies where people were showing up for group meditation. If you Google Transcendental Meditation, mass meditations, you can read some of this research. So there's something that people just feel called to, that they know that this thing is going to create some form of ripple. It's different and it feels like it's serving something. It's also a beautiful illustration of that inherent need for connection, growth, and belonging, right? Absolutely. Totally. When it comes to a gathering, and right now I think bringing people together is more important than ever just because of how isolated and disconnected we are. But when it comes to a gathering, I always like to think about how can people at that gathering be given a role where they can contribute in some way? How can they actually feel like they're giving to the experience and not just taking? If you look at maybe a more traditional gathering like a concert, which I love concerts, it's a lot of, for the most part, taking. You have a bunch of people in the audience, musician on stage, and it's one way. Musicians perform, the people in the stage are taking in that experience. But besides clapping or singing along, the audience members aren't really contributing to the experience. But when a gathering can be designed in a way where the audience can contribute, and this might be controversial for some people, but if you look at church groups, or if you just look at like a Sunday congregation, oftentimes what you'll see is that people will break out and turn to a partner or turn to a small group of strangers, and they'll actually check in and share about something that's going on in their lives, or they'll speak to some type of prompt that is being prompted to them through scripture that week. And suddenly the attendees are actually communicating their truths and sharing stories and playing an actual role in impacting the experience. And I think that's part of why church and especially church groups can be so effective. And I think this is oftentimes the case with religion, that when people can feel like they're actually contributing or playing a role in the experience, then there's that deeper sense of connection, belonging, growth, feeling like you're a part of this thing. It empowers people to want to continue to show up. And I think that that's true for mass meditations too. It's how can you create that sense of belonging by giving people the feeling that their involvement is actually going to impact the greater experience? Well, knowing that not just younger generations, but a great deal of the population at this point are all wired differently than ever before. We're consuming the majority of our information through snapshots or headlines or whatever it might be. But how do you see the future of meditation and mindfulness playing a role in that changing landscape of society? I think that it's going to become more necessary than ever before. A stat that's really interesting to me is if you look at our hunter and gatherer ancestors, our great, 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 great ancestors, about 12,000 years ago, all of our ancestors lived in tribes. All humans on this earth lived in tribes, and they did for hundreds of thousands of years. 
our great, great, great ancestors in these tribes, the amount of information that they would process in their entire lifetimes is equivalent to the amount of information that we process in one day today in 2023. So there's so much input that we're taking in. There's so much that our bodies and brains are processing on a daily basis. And in a pretty short period of time, 12,000 years relatively short, especially in the past hundred years, this has ramped up. So in a relatively short period of time, there's been this big change in regards to how much input we take on. And a significant portion of U.S. adults experience overwhelm. I think this is probably true for a lot of people in the world today. The number is even greater for young people. So mindfulness, meditation, even just small moments of slowing down and taking breaks from our phones, from all the information, from the feeling like we need to always be posting or showing up or improving ourselves, right? These small moments where we can take breathers from that, I think is going to be so important to help with all of the information, all of the emotion that's coming into the system. But we actually practice meditation. We're helping strengthen the body's nervous system so we're able to take on all those demands. We're able to take on all of what comes our way. And without meditation, and there's various other practices and wellness practices that can help this as well, but through the lens of meditation, without meditation, it becomes more challenging to face those demands because we're more likely to have those fight or flight or that stress response get triggered with whatever comes our way. When we're making even small moments of regular meditation, quiet, mindfulness, we're able to take on what comes our way because there's less of that fight or flight, there's less of that stress response, and there's more of that parasympathetic nervous system. There's more of that relaxation response, more of that presence and ability and spaciousness to thoughtfully respond to what comes our way instead of stressfully react all the time. So to answer your question, I think that as that information just continues to become more and more intense and more and more continues to come in, it's going to be more important than ever for us to have the practices to help us be able to take that on. I think that meditation is going to continue to be a key piece of that. I think we're going to see other critical components as well. I mean, there's lots we could get into for the sake of time. The other one I'll mention is I think we're going to see real change in regards to our relationship with our phones. I think we're going to start to see more people using these new features that I'm so happy to see on the iPhone, like the do not disturb or the focus zones or the downtime feature for iPhone users that are listening that don't know about downtime. It's this great feature that you can find in settings within screen time. And what it does is it allows you to set a time every night where all of your apps go off or the apps that you want to choose go off. They essentially turn gray and it's kind of a pain in the ass to open them back up. You don't get any notifications, just kind of hard to access them. And I love that. It just creates a boundary where we can have awake live time without being fully tethered to our devices. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that. Yeah. I mean, at this point, it would be out of necessity rather than innovation, right? Yeah, I think so. Corporations, I think it goes without saying at this point, are treating practices like meditation as a valuable tool to help their teams optimize things like peak performance or even their overall well-being. And that's something that a space that you've been working in as well for a number of years at this point. So what type of feedback have you been getting from those types of workers in the world as far as the benefits they've experienced after having learned meditation with you or any other bits of wisdom you're sharing during some of those visits? Yeah, when it comes to the workplace, especially when it comes to working with founders and CEOs and executives. It's a big part of my work to actually work one-on-one as a leadership coach with executives in this capacity and with public figures. And what I see in these spaces is that 
yes, it's great to have these practices that help people, especially these kind of high profile or high power leaders, whatever you want to call them. Yes, it helps them experience less stress. Right. And that's going to be really valuable because less stress means way more creativity, way faster response time for problem solving when issues come up, a more intuitive sense of how to raise up their team members and support their team members so they can operate at their best. Right. And just a general happier sense of being, a deeper sense of joy and being able to enjoy their lives, right? So being able to pull back stress is going to enhance all these other components of how they show up. But what I also see with leaders in this capacity is that by best positioning themselves to feel good and to feel healthy, they're able to fine tune the vessel that they are as a human and a leadership role, creating impact in the world. And they're able to really clearly start to discern how they can show up to best contribute to whatever is coming their way, how they can best discern what they can do to kick as much ass as possible within work or what they need to do or how they can show up to create the greatest impact in their relationships or with their families or with their friends. There's a clarity that starts to form that helps the individual really understand what they can do to have the greatest impact possible to be able to contribute most meaningfully to whatever comes their way. And I think that this is so important. This is when we start to talk about how people can really move into their potential and their power as a human. Mm -hmm. Step one to meditation with all things, but especially in the workplace is reducing that stress. Step two is with that block gone, how can people then get really clear about how to give their greatest gifts and really be in that place of power and potential. And from there, they're just going to give their most to the world and have the greatest impact in regards to solving the world's problems. And that's what this is about. And that's why I love seeing leaders and just humans in general practice meditation, because it's going to mean more people giving their gifts in a world that needs people in their power. This world needs people giving their gifts right now. Well, I'm glad you brought up the coaching thing because I feel like meditation teacher, despite the fact that you have unique aspects to your own offering and how you show up in the world with that role, It's somewhat self-explanatory, right? We know what that means when you read those words. Whereas I think today, the idea of a coach, it's such a diversified series of definitions based on who's using it and how they're using it. And I was curious to kind of dive into that aspect of your work and even the differences between you working with a CEO versus an entrepreneur. And some of what you've just touched upon are obviously the positive byproducts of a regular meditation practice. But in terms of coaching, how would you describe coaching? Let's start there in the capacity of how you practice it. Yeah. Like you said, coaching is a very broad word. It's Uh kind of a loaded word right now because pretty much anybody can say that they're a coach. And with that, I think there's a lot of excitement. And with that, there's also a lot of issues. For me, so much of my career has been about meditation, teaching people meditation, guiding these big meditations, talking about meditation, making it accessible in popular culture. And what I started to realize over the past few years was that I love meditation, but it's probably, I don't know, maybe 10, 15% of the gifts that I have to offer in the world. And I was feeling like so much of how I was showing up was just through the lens of meditation. And there's all this other knowledge and all this other wisdom that I felt like I had within me to be able to help people outside of meditation. So when I made the choice to start to mentor and coach leaders, it came from this place of, all right, let me get somebody 
really rooted in a meditation practice, really get them self-sufficient and at a level of mastery with meditation as a baseline. Honestly, it's just a small part of what we do. And then it's about how do I support and help this person find within themselves the solutions to a lot of the problems that they're faced with, but also how do I help them find within themselves what gets them most excited with work, what lights them up most with how they can have impact in the world and in their relationships? How do we tap into that greater sense of fulfillment and satisfaction in all the components of their lives? And for so many of the leaders that I work with, what I notice is that it starts with helping them find a sense of happiness and a sense of joy within themselves that's not tied to external stuff. How can these high-powered leaders or public figures be happy with who they are just as a human being and not have it be fully dependent on their external success or their power or their recognition. When we're able to bring any person into a position of, I'm able to feel a sense of gratitude and appreciation and joy just because of the person that I am, just because of all the challenges and beautiful moments that I've been through in my life that shape me to the person that I am, when someone can find that sense of love and self-worth and joy within themselves, just based on being them, they become invincible. <laughs> and then what we see is they're able to take that sense of inner joy and happiness and bring it to their work instead of rely on their work for that happiness. They can bring that inner joy and they can bring it to their partnerships or into their romantic relationships and share it with their partners instead of rely on their partners or rely uh, on those relationships for that sense of joy. People are able to really fully bring themselves and create real impact and even greater success because it's not coming from a place of scarcity. It's not coming from a place of fear. I need this thing, then I'll be happy. It comes from a place of, I'm good now. And I just wanna share that goodness with the world. This is a really powerful place to come from. What I see is that when high-powered leaders or people who are really influencing their industry or culture can show up in this way, they're going to be able to lead those people. They're going to be able to have that impact on culture with more heart, with more love, with more empathy and compassion. Their leadership comes from a richer place, and that creates a ripple effect on all the people that they lead and touch. That's why I've grown to love this one-on-one -on -one work so much. I used to be in this mindset of, no, 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 I can't do one-on-one -on -one stuff. I just need to focus on how can I reach as many people as possible and thousands of people meditating at once through the big quiet, which is powerful and cool in and of itself. But when it comes to the one-on-one -on -one work and be able to deeply transform somebody's life, you're able to see how they start to become a vessel of change just by how they show up and who they impact in the world. Well, it's a butterfly effect, right? Yeah, exactly. And this is essentially what you mean when you say helping people get out of their head and into their power. That's it. <laughs> Beautifully broken down and very well illustrated. <laughs> That's also why I was curious to hear what you have experienced in terms of differences between working with a CEO versus an entrepreneur, because we're reading statistics and seeing that the gig economy is growing at rapid rates and in the years to come, it will only get bigger. Naturally moving through the world as a solopreneur, entrepreneur, freelancer, there are components that give you more agency over your life, your schedule, and, and how it is that you run things. But on the flip side, there are also more external variables that can often introduce a sense of 
analysis paralysis or uncertainty or whatever it might be. And we hear a lot about that talking to different creatives in the industry just because there are those elements you can't necessarily control. But to your point, when people are showing up to these situations or creative processes sort of complete in and of themselves and doing these things out of a genuine interest, passion or enjoyment of that particular process, it becomes a much more positive experience. And you're not necessarily engaging with the opportunities to feel fear around the what ifs, you know? Yeah. So everything you're saying makes a great deal of sense. I'm glad that it resonates. The thing I'll add to in, in regards to that piece, and this is true for anybody, if they're a student, if they're working a corporate job or service job, entrepreneur, CEO, whatever, doesn't really matter what the ranges of power or what the role looks like. What I see is that when somebody is able to really build up their sense of self-worth, when they're able to actually see and believe in who they are as a unique person with unique gifts, with unique lived experience, when they're able to find a sense of love for who they are on their unique path and journey and believe in themselves for what they're able to uniquely bring to the world, when someone's able to be in that place of self-love and self-worth, anything's possible, really. And what I see is that when someone connects with that, their ability to enjoy life, regardless of what's happening outside of their control, starts to stabilize. There's an ability to face the unknown with a sense of excitement instead of fear. There's this ability to adapt, to change, and be okay with it, actually see opportunity in the change instead of feeling all of that discomfort or fear around it. There's just this shift that starts to occur where an individual has this deeper knowing that it's going to work out. It's going to unfold the way that it's meant to. And this creates an ability to let go. The sense of relief starts to flood in when we're able to live from this place. But it's really challenging to operate from this place because so much of the world around us, especially within our culture and within social media, tells us that we need all of these things outside of us to then feel good. And so much of that work and the work that I do as a coach, but also as a meditation teacher is about unlearning all those messages so we can find that sense of love and worth within ourselves. Preach. <laughs> so much of our conversation today has really beautifully illustrated the answer to this next and final question, but obviously it is subjective and filled with unlimited possibilities as an answer. So what do you, Jesse Israel, think is contemporary now? Yeah, you know, it's tied to what I just said, but yeah. I think that what feels so relevant right now, especially when we're in this kind of like reimagining or making new sense of our lives, wherever we're at within the pandemic, there's this opportunity for people to really focus on what matters most to them, what creates the most sense of satisfaction for them sense of fulfillment, sense of aliveness. And we're seeing this as people are, you know, great resignation. People are leaving their jobs and making big changes and really getting clear about how they want to give themselves to the actions and the relationships and the work that lights them up most, that lets them feel most like themselves. So I think what's contemporary right now is this call for people to make the big scary changes in their lives, to give themselves to really what they're here to do. 
and and to find those things that feel most alivening, those relationships and those roles that feel most alivening. And this is for people who are clear about what those things are and they're ready to jump into it. And this is for people who are not sure what those things are, but they know what doesn't feel alivening and they're ready to start to make those changes. I think right now what's contemporary is people beginning to actually take action around making the change to discover what makes them feel most alive in their lives. And I'm excited to see people embracing that culturally because I think it's so critical that the world has people living in that place of aliveness because the world really needs it right now. Amen. We always have the best conversations. I don't know why it took us so long to have this one, but I'm glad that we did. And thank you again (laughs) for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me. It's so good to chat with you again and really missed our conversation. So really grateful. Thanks for listening to this episode of What's Contemporary Now. A special thanks to our show's producer, Cheyenne Asadi, who makes it all possible. Original theme music by Joseph Top Miller and Chase Coughlin of The Black Soft. And visual design by Aaron Marr and Graham Prentice. Subscribe now to be the first to hear new episodes and for more content, follow us on Instagram at What's Contemporary or visit us online at whatscontemporary.com. 